Last week, uh, Jesus raised this topic of anxiety in the Christian life. And twice, he made the connection to decisions that we make about treasures, where we invest our treasures, and mammon. He says this in verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or God and mammon. Now, this week, Jesus continues to explore this connection. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, verse 25, about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. So Jesus draws once again this connection between anxiety and mammon. And although the connection seems simple, its implications are fairly wide ranging. First, according to Jesus, mammon is not simply a possible object of worship among many other objects, but mammon uh, can act as a kind of master to whom service must be rendered if we decide to worship it. Second, Jesus suggests that we are moved to worship mammon or money, often out of anxiety and fear of not having our basic material and human needs met. And third, Jesus says, our anxiety and fear can at times reveal, can often reveal, a lack of awareness or trust in the goodness of God. Anxiety is a complex and multi-layered thing, but Jesus says you have to consider what it reflects about our awareness and trust of God's goodness. So I think what we have in Matthew chapter 6 overall is a sort of guided spiritual direction exercise that's peppered with a series of searching questions, all intended to draw step by step out of a posture of anxiety into a spiritual posture of lighthearted wonder and wholehearted trust. Lighthearted wonder and wholehearted trust. So let's look first at lighthearted wonder. Jesus seeks to draw his disciples into a contemplative posture of light-hearted wonder. And I think he does this by encouraging us first to think big and second to live small. Think big, says Jesus. Think big thoughts about God. Here I think we encounter Jesus the contemplative. He's always looking for the more in human life, for the depth in things, for the meaning that lies beneath the surface, for the glimpses of God's glory and face that are hidden in the heart of creation. So you'll notice the language of more shows up many times in his questions in chapter six. Is not life more than food, he says in verse 25, the body more than clothing? Verse 26, are you not of more value than the birds? Verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? It was once said of people in modern society that they know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. <laughs> and that's not so with God. Jesus is alerting us to the fact that God sees more meaning, more purpose, and more values, value in our lives than we often do. And Jesus is inviting us to see the world, including our own lives and our own needs and our own worries and our own anxieties, through God's vision of the value of his creation. 
Look at the birds of the air, says Jesus. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Consider also the lilies of the field, says Jesus, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory and splendor was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, will he not much more clothe you? See, Jesus takes these two earthly examples in order to draw our hearts and minds to two fundamental truths about God. And the first is that God cherishes his creation, especially his image bearers. He sees value in what he has made. The theologian that I kind of studied for my PhD once wrote an essay on the doctrine of creation entitled, Love is the Lover of Life. Love, capital L, God is love, is the lover of life. And Dallas Willard once, I think, said something very similar to this. He said, God is a being of wholly competent love. Wholly competent love. And that love values every aspect of the creaturely and human life that he has made. The life of the birds point us to this fundamental truth about God. That God's active lordship and his creative presence and his holy competent love is experienced in the rhythms and the routines of the ordinary. Dale Bruner, who was a great Presbyterian preacher who served up in uh, Hollywood in one period in time, he draws out wonderfully the implications of this thought of God's cherishing of his creation for our own lives. He says this, we are asked by Jesus not to limit our faith in the Father to merely spiritual things. He says, we are asked to believe also that the Father is active in economic matters alive to our physical needs, and the provider of food, just as he is the provider of mercy. We are asked, in a word, to believe that God is God, not only the God of redemption, but the God of creation. And so Jesus wants to draw our hearts and minds to this fundamental truth that God creates the whole world, but he also continues to cherish it and care for it. And the second truth is not only does God cherish and care for what he has made, but he beautifies his creation. Like he's not content with pragmatic efficiency alone. He wants to proliferate and multiply beauty in his world. We live in this God-bathed and glory-soaked world. So the psalmist tells us the heavens declare the glory of God. And the hymn tells us all thy works with joy surround thee. Earth and heaven reflect thy ways. And the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins tells us the world is charged with the grandeur of God. I mean, it's important for us to remember that in this season. This is still our father's world, and it still reflects his rays of beauty and glory, even though it's broken and at times chaotic. God beautifies his creation. One is reminded of Chesterton's, uh, G.K. Chesterton's famous speculation. He says this, is it possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun? And every evening, do it again to the moon? It may not be automatic necessity, says Chesterton, that makes all daisies and flowers alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately 
but has never got tired of making flowers. It may be that God has the eternal appetite of an infant, for we have sinned and grown old, yet our father is younger than we are. Maybe, he says, the repetition of nature may not be mere reoccurrence, but rather God's theatrical encore, end quote. It's a lovely thing to reflect on. And while Chesterton's reflections are guesswork, like no one really knows how God creates all things out of nothing, they do help us see this fundamental truth about God that I think the illustration of the lilies are trying to point us to. That God seems to always have before his heart and mind the richness and the multifaceted beauty of his creation, which he made, and he seems to always be delighting in it. Even amidst the brokenness and the fragmentation of the world, God is, in a sense, still doing what he did in Genesis 1, looking at all of it and saying, it is good that it is here. He still clothes flowers with royal robes of splendor, and he still works with ever-fresh energy to make the sun rise and the sun set and the moon to go about its cycles. Creation has not been left alone, in other words. We human beings have not been left alone. We do not inhabit a, a space in the world or a period of history where we have been left up to fate or where we have been left into the hands of an indifferent or hostile or malevolent series of forces. No, this is still our father's world, Jesus wants us to see. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And so Jesus, I think, in Matthew chapter 6, begins by inviting us first to think big. For it would seem that anxiety often takes root in our hearts when we have a small or truncated or flattened vision of life and of God. But then Jesus invites us to live small. Think big, live small. Here we encounter Jesus, the pragmatist of sorts. He gives us a straightforward, pragmatic, common sense wisdom. On the one hand, he says, human experience seems to teach us that anxiety does not actually add much to human life. Far from lengthening our days, it often shortens them. So we see in verse 27, Jesus asks this piercing question. He says, and which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? The implication, none of us. Interesting later, later, interestingly, later in verse 33, we'll discover that uh, Jesus once again uses the word, the language of adding, and it's in reference to God adding to us what we cannot add to ourselves. But then Jesus goes on, on the other hand, to say that anxiety does not only add nothing to our lives, but it does not actually give us control over the future or make tomorrow any better for us. And he says this in verse 34, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. In other words, learn to live day by day. Yes, plan for the future. Yes, be wise, but don't fret. Don't worry. Practically speaking, I think Jesus is saying to us, all we can do as human beings in any season, any situation, any circumstance, no matter how difficult, is simply to live faithfully in the present moment. 
to practice the presence of God in the here and now, moment by moment, day by day. There literally is no other way to hu live human life. We cannot place ourselves in the past or in the future miraculously. We can only live now in light of the past, in the hope of the future. So Jesus says, slow down. Watch the birds. Contemplate the lilies. And observe your father's goodness and care and creativity. You see, in both cases, think big, live small. Jesus seems to be inviting his apprentices, his followers, into a contemplative posture of lighthearted wonder. Life is a gift, Jesus seems to be saying, and we can entrust our lives to the goodness of the giver. See, I think one of the problems with an unhealthy focus on material acquisition or mammon, as Jesus talks about it, is that it often trains our hearts and minds to, to feel and to think and to inhabit the world by and large in terms of calculation and planning and acquisition. Our posture towards the world and towards God is one of doing, taking control, mastery, making efficient. But what so often we lose in the midst of this is that sense of awestruck wonder and of mystery that the world and our lives are enchanted with God's presence. So Jesus invites us to this counter-cultural movement of lighthearted wonder, a way of responding to the world that sees it as an enchanted place charged with the grandeur of God. As one Canadian philosopher put it, we are invited to the recognition that our response to the whole world should not most deeply be that of doing nor even that of fear and anguish, but that of wondering and marveling at what is, being amazed or astonished by it, or perhaps best, admiring the one who makes it and sustains it all. Is not life more than food, says Jesus, and the body more than clothing? Jesus invites his disciples to this contemplative posture of lighthearted wonder. And then he invites his disciples into an active posture of wholehearted trust. And just as in a brief aside, this combination of contemplation and active living seems to always be side by side in Jesus' thought. If you go to Luke chapter 10, um, you get him giving the parable of the Good Samaritan, the act of life, and then telling Mary that she has chosen the better portion sitting at his feet as opposed to being busy with serving the contemplative life. So there's this sense that the active and contemplative all to always go together in the Christian life. Here, Jesus says in verse 31, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Knowing that the Father knows all our needs and will provide for us, we are free, says Jesus, to prioritize God's kingdom and his righteousness. So what are the priorities of God's kingdom? And Honestly, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. 
<laughs> the Sermon on the Mount is like Jesus saying the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has broken into the world. And do you want to know what it looks like when the kingdom of God breaks into the world? Sit down and listen, friends, because this is what it looks like. And then the Sermon on the Mount. And so let's just take a bird's eye view of it once again. What does it look to see, like to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Well, Jesus says in the Beatitudes, it looks like a transformed and always being transformed quality of character, like a growing humility, a growing sensitivity to sin and brokenness of the world, a growing gentleness towards people who are different from us, a growing hunger that all relationships would be made right and just and good. A growing willingness to offer mercy to people who have hurt you. A growing desire for purity of heart and a growing ability to make peace in the world where there's hostility and injustice and pain. And a growing willingness to even endure suffering and scorn for the sake of seeing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The Sermon on the Mount then goes on when Jesus does kind of his heart surgery stuff to say that the kingdom of God looks like a deeper and ever deepening, deepening wholeness in relationships. So what does it look like to seek first the kingdom? Anger is overcome through reconciliation. Lust is kept under discipline. Marriage is honored with lifelong fidelity. Language is simple and honest. Retaliation is renounced, and enemy love replaces hate. What does it look like to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Jesus goes on. It means a richer spiritual life and the spiritual practices that enrich our spiritual life of giving and praying and fasting and all of that being done, not for the praise of people and the honor of people, but rather for the pleasure and delight of the Father. What does it look like to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Jesus has been telling us in the last couple of weeks, it means a healthier public and economic life where anxious preoccupation with finding and getting and acquiring better and better things is replaced with lighthearted wonder at God's creative goodness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, says Jesus. And all these things, all your needs, are going to be taken care of by me. See, in a world fraught with tension and anxiety, I wonder if Jesus is actually inviting us back to one of the most countercultural things of our faith. And that's the simple recognition that life is a gift. Always to be received as a gift. Always to be enjoyed as a gift always to be stewarded for the sake of others as a gift. So my brothers and sisters, I pray today and in this week, Jesus would give you the gift of lighthearted wonder and wholehearted trust. I speak these things to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.